You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 96. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, oh my God, it's raining so much out there. I just got drenched, but uh, I am now inside and dry. And ready to take you through mostly another solo show. It's the countdown to the end of the year and the end of the decade here. Also, uh, as we approach episode 100, which I think if I count, if I'm counting correctly, then episode 100 is going to be the first episode of the new year. I'm not exactly sure if I'm going to do something different for that episode, but uh, I'm taking suggestions, localmaxradio at gmail.com. Today's episode is sponsored once again by Manning Publishing. Learn computer science, software, and technology by checking out the books over at manning.com. Discount code PODLOCALMAX19 if you want a 40% discount on any of their books. Aaron and I are also going to discuss uh, two of these science discovery articles floating around that we found interesting. One on how much red meat is good for you or bad for you, and one on how much sleep is good for you or bad for you. These articles, they often have similar formulas and similar claims. There is no kind of perfect way to analyze each one, but I think for the purposes of this discussion, uh, we look at these in a measured, logical manner, and we try to evaluate them. I was on a couple other podcasts, well, not a couple other podcasts, one podcast and one radio show. The podcast was Michael Kennedy's Talk Python to Me. I did the whole thing on Bayesian inference, and we also talked about Python and programming languages and how to actually use these methods as an engineer and a data science, if that's what a data scientist, if that's what you're into. Actually, uh, for those of you who have come here through Talk Python to me, um, if that's how you found the show, if you're interested in that, then you're really going to love the next two episodes of Local Maximum. Even if this one is a little different, you might be like, well, what is this guy? But the next two episodes you're going to love. One is a conversation about learning computer science, and another, again, is about a new podcast about Bayesian inference that's out there. And I'll tell you more about this pair of interviews at the end of the program, but uh, definitely stick around, uh, subscribe so you can get those two. Uh, so first, as some as, as some of you know, I was at the Yale-Harvard game a few weeks ago. I tend to go almost every year. I, uh, I noticed at some point that Yale would lose whenever I was there, and people would tell me, well, why don't you stop going? And I was like, they owe me a win. Why should I change? So I saw them win for the first time in 2017. That kind of broke the curse for me. Uh, wasn't there in 2018. Anyway, there was this, uh, this climate protest, a climate strike, if you will, that took place during the halftime show and delayed the game by almost an hour. It made national news. I was going to let that story be, you know, let's, <laughs> let's not touch it. Let's let other people cover it. But someone must have found out that uh, I was there because the memo went out that uh, the, the Lisa Wexler show, that's this talk radio show, in Connecticut, 600 AM, was looking for a caller on this topic, and I was there at the Yale Bowl when these events transpired. I've been on local Connecticut talk radio, so yeah, I was asked to be the caller on this one. So I had a few minutes on the radio show to describe what happened. I didn't get to take notes beforehand and then uh, offer my opinion, but I didn't really have enough time to go over everything I would like to. So 
Since we're going there anyway, since I was already asked publicly about this, if I have a podcast, then why don't I kind of flesh it out a little further? Anyway, uh, first, this is just what I saw from my vantage point, and then I'll break down how I interpret uh, the events and the protest in general and the issue is involved in general. So sometime in the second quarter of the game, I moved with my group to the top of the stadium, you know, that's the highest seats, so that we weren't bombarded with the drunken crowd and can actually see what's going on, particularly for the halftime show. I really like the halftime shows with the uh, the Yale Precision Marching Band. I was actually in that band for a couple of years. That was uh, basically until I decided to start at Yale Radio, so that was my pre-radio Yale days, that's sort of where I kind of, how I kind of classify my Yale experience, pre-radio and post-radio. Uh, Got to pick and choose those extracurriculars, folks. It's, uh, it's important. Otherwise, you don't have enough time. Anyway, uh, the band was a lot of fun, but uh, it, was, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of going out in the cold and getting up early and uh, uh, getting up early really started to get to me. You know, the radio, sh- the radio program was at 5 p.m. Anyway, the, uh, the Yale Precision Marching Band, they did a pretty good Lion King-themed halftime show. Uh, then they cleared the field, as they usually do. That's when, uh, at, in, the, uh, in the stadium, in the Yale Bowl, they typically announce, they typically make all these announcements. They announce awards, they announce celebrities, whoever, alumni, and they bring them to the field and that sort of thing. I don't know what they're doing. They give them medals or something. Uh, honestly, it's probably not medals, but honestly, it's a time when most people go to the bathroom or you know, they grab a hot chocolate or a pizza because most people aren't interested in that, uh, even less so than the football. I feel like a lot of people there aren't even interested in the football. So they were announcing something about John Kerry. I don't remember what it was. I don't see anything written down in the articles that were written about this situation. So it's probably some boring announcement. But then after the announcement stopped, and you could tell that something was happening that wasn't planned, and you could see about, I think, 100 to 150 people on the field in a close-knit formation, so it wasn't all over the field. And they held signs of kind of like shame on Yale and Harvard for investing a portion of their endowments that could be over a billion dollars total invested in fossil fuel businesses, oil and gas. There are a couple other issues involved. But anyway, the security came and took their, the security guards came, they took their signs, but the group was still on the field. So security led up on them for a little bit. I think that there must have been some help up in the sound booth at the Yale Bowl or possibly some sympathy up in the booth of the Yale Bowl as they played uh, Take Me Home Country Roads by John Denver. Great song, and he was a big environmentalist. And at that point, people who were in the stands came down and rushed the field, so they had a lot of people. I'm sure many of them were sympathetic to the cause of the protesters, and some were just people who join in with whatever the crowd does, no matter what, always get some of those people. And of course, Uh, There were also the people in the stadium who were not happy with what was going on. I don't know the proportions. I didn't take a poll, but of course you could see all those things going on. Um, All instead, it wasn't, I don't know, it didn't feel that chaotic. It was getting pretty cold, so I let a few people in some warm-up jumping jacks at the top of the stadium there above gate 11. Now, eventually the announcer came on and said, uh, as a courtesy to the players, please clear the field. So it's possible that in the booth... They were at first sympathetic, but they didn't want to cancel the game. And we were kind of taking wagers on whether the game would actually go on or not. So this announcement was made several times. 
And eventually some of the, the joiners left the field, a larger group of security came in, and then they escorted the core group off the field. I'm not sure if they got a summons or, or, or arrest or, or whatever that was. The football teams came back to play. They finished in the dark, by the way. Huge come from behind win from the Yale. And this was in the dark. Uh, unfortunately, which is common for me, I missed it because I left after the third quarter. quarter uh, jaded by all those losses in the past. That's a lesson for me in the future. Now I'm always going to have to finish the game every time I go there. So <laughs> that's uh, no one can convince me to leave uh, anymore after that. And it probably won't happen again. So I'll probably just be sitting around fourth quarter uh, having the games end the way they are expected to at the end of the third quarter for the rest of my life. Way to go. Uh, so, okay. So that's basically what happens. Now a few thoughts. Uh, some people have derided the protest as useless and ineffective. I certainly don't believe that. Uh, I think it was as effective as they could have hoped for in terms of how protests go. Uh, they got the attention of the national and international media as well as embarrassed the administrations of Yale and Harvard. And yeah, those people, those administrations, often will fold very easily on this stuff as we've seen in recent years. That's why you always see uh, these big protests and demonstrations on these universities uh, not only is there there's institutional support for it, uh, even if the administration doesn't like it, they'll they they can't stop it, and they do often make changes because just because someone is screaming really loud, that's that's a fact. So think about it: these endowments that uh, these universities invest, that is those endowments are worth tens of billions of dollars. So do you think that a group of people can raise millions in order to potentially move? billions. Someone directly benefits when those billions are moved. And yeah, millions can be raised to do that. It just makes sense uh, investment-wise. And that's not, I'm not just talking uh, directly, you know, hey, someone putting up millions of dollars to do these protests. You know, that's including the entire ecosystem, including time that people put into this and career activists that, yes, they do get their funding from somewhere, got to pay the bills. The question is not whether they were effective. And the question is not, well, another thing people are brought up, is not whether they were right to interrupt a football game either. Honestly, I think, <laughs> I think a majority of the people in the stands were just as entertained by the protest than by the football. That's just my, <laughs> that's, my, I, 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 that's my observation. And while... You know, the, the stadium is private property. These universities kind of consider them to be semi-public. They do act in kind of close proximity to government at times. Uh, and uh, ultimately, the activists, they did let the game go on. If they actually said, no, we're determined to make sure this game never continues, uh, then yeah, people would still defend them. But that was obviously not necessary and, and that would be truly unfair to the players, whereas a delay is just an inconvenience. So no, to me, it's not about the effectiveness. It's not about interrupting a football game. The question is whether what they were doing and whether their actions and whole way of thinking are leading to a better world or a worse one. People don't want to have a debate about this, but just waving signs doesn't automatically make you right. Notice that all of the people in the stands made up their mind in like 10 seconds without knowing any of the issues. That's a common thing. People just want to be seen uh, to be on the right issue uh, by their, the right side of the issue by their peers, rather than uncomfortably having to think critically about a situation and possibly come to a disagreement, which is uh, 
which is quite uncomfortable. <laughs> so first of all, if you listen to the rhetoric of these groups and their subsequent op-eds and also the uh, recent uh, climate leaders like Greta uh, Thunberg, and I'll include uh, recent statements by Bernie Sanders in that, they truly believe, or at least they truly say, that the Earth is on the path to being uninhabitable in just a, a few decades or a couple decades. Now think about it. If the Earth really was going to be uninhabitable, if billions of people are going to perish unless some change is made, then what isn't justified? What couldn't be justified in their minds? They can do pretty much anything and say, hey, we're all going to die unless we do this. So I'm happy they're doing some nonviolence protests right now, but the logical consequences of their message uh, will be very violent. It could even be at its most extreme. It could even justify a world war, which is in reality the only danger of unnecessarily losing millions of lives in the 21st century. So I said on the radio program that uh, I believe standards of living will be much higher in the coming decades despite climate change. Why is that? Why did I say that? We know from climatologists that the Earth is warming. We know that when humans put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it contributes to that warming, the greenhouse effect. And we can also guess that burning of fossil fuels and carbon dioxide emissions are not likely to end abruptly. Uh, best case scenario in terms of reducing CO2 emissions is that it gradually gets replaced by alternative sources of energy as those alternatives become economically feasible. At the same time, in the next couple decades, though, uh, we have the rise of AI that's going to make our energy use much more efficient. It's going to make our food production much more efficient. It already is unbelievably efficient. We have the rise of Bitcoin and fixed supply currencies, which, if adopted, and hopefully it will, will encourage people, uh, capitalists, to take a long-term view of the value of their capital. The current monetary system doesn't do that to our disadvantage. We'll become much more efficient in medicine and energy, transportation, and also foreseeing and avoiding disasters of the type that, uh, that the climate activists warm about. So the earth will warm, but the end is not near. And that's not to say that there's nothing to do about the climate issue. Investing and researching in these alternative sources of energy is important and could be profitable too, but that requires a lot of work. It requires capital investment. It requires science and engineering. It requires business management. It requires a lot of smart people to come together. Um, uh, you know, not just kind of activism and, and stunts. They don't mention, uh, and, and the, the activists, they don't tend to mention alternative uh, sources of energy. They never mention nuclear as a possibility either. Nuclear is risky to be sure, but if you think that the world is going to come to an end because of oil and gas and coal, you better support nuclear or at least you know, put it on your list of possibilities. Instead, and um, sure, I'll link to them on the show notes. I'm not afraid of uh, passing around their comments, but the author, authors of this demonstration wrote about their plans in the Guardian newspaper, so I'll link to that. They believe that every weather disaster that has occurred in the last few decades is not just a, a disaster, not just a, you know, not just a, a weather event, but they believe it is an injustice, an injustice caused by capitalism and neocolonialism. Yes, that's the term they use, neocolonialism. They like these kind of scary-sounding words without explaining what they mean by them. 
so you might as well just say like uh, neo-feudalism or, or something. I'm not making it up. Just read the whole article. So let's say that this group is ultimately successful in getting Yale and Harvard to divest from fossil fuels. Will this not just allow some other investor to move in? They really are ultimately going to have to get a total ban, a total ban from world governments. And some people have even suggested this is the goal. Don't wait for the climate to kill millions of people. Let's just beat them to it. And it all comes down to a probabilistic argument that I've heard made on this issue. I know a lot of you out there might not agree with what I'm saying right now, but at least when you listen to the local maximum, you always get a new concept uh, in probability in your toolbox, so that'll be good. And today's concept is something called Pascal's Wager. It was an ideal that, it was an idea that, uh, it comes from a French mathematician. His name is uh, Blas Pascal. Uh, it's called Pascal's Wager, and um, actually, there's a lot that comes from Pascal that we could talk about on the show in, in future episodes. He did a lot on probability theory. Um, interestingly enough, this concept, uh, like the work of Thomas Bayes and Bayesian inference, let's look at episode zero and episode 68, comes from a theological argument. He says that if religion says that you need to do something to avoid uh, eternal damnation in the afterlife and you and uh, go to heaven in the afterlife, then you might as well do it because mainly because the, the payment of going to heaven is taken as an infinite payoff and the uh, payment of hell is taken as an infinitely negative payoff. There come those uh, infinities again that I discussed in, uh, in a previous episode. What was that episode? That was 90, 94, I think. That was recent. So even if the religious teaching ha or claim has a tiny, tiny fraction of a percent probability of being true, uh, you'd better follow it, goes the argument, because the payoffs both on the negative side and the positive side, are just so large to ignore. In fact, they're infinite. So if you think they're not large enough, well, they're larger than that. Um, this comes into problems, of course. Come to think of it, I don't really have, in, in my religious upbringing, we didn't really have uh, any concept of kind of eternal damnation. So by this argument, I, I'm supposed to change religions now from um, Judaism to something else that, uh, that, that, that has this. Um, although, I, yeah, so I, I'm not an expert on, on all these different religions, so I don't want to start getting into this right now. I'm probably, I don't know what I'm going to get more in trouble for, for talking about, uh, for, for making claims in different religions or for the, the climate change stuff, but uh, we'll see. Uh, so anyway, uh, this claim does run into problems. Uh, first of all, when you get contradictory statements from different religions, while well, somebody has uh, somebody has, you know, an infinite payoff over here and somebody else has an infinite pay payoff over here. But it's also been applied to climate rhetoric as well. They would say that even if there's a 1% chance that the Earth becomes uninhabitable unless we take action X, then action X, no matter what X is, is justified. And you see that argument a lot. You know, hey, you might think that I'm wrong and you're right, but... You know, there's, the, there's that principle in Bayesian inference that you have to put a little bit of probability on my hypothesis. So you've got to consider, what if I'm right and you're wrong? That means, uh, that, that means that we have to conclude. And then if there's even a small possibility that if I'm right, that means that um, we have to do what I say because I'm predicting a catastrophic ending. And that means that you have to do what I say. 
Well, here's the problem that I've identified with that line of reasoning. Uh, Suppose that people accept it. Fine. If someone claims there's an infinite negative payoff to something, I'm going to assume that there's a certain percent chance they're right, and then the right action ends up being to do what they tell me to do, because I'll even take an infinitesimal uh, probability of avoiding the negative infinite payoff. So I'll do what they say. What's going to happen? That's when you see all sorts of people and groups start coming out of the woodwork, and they're all going to start making this claim that either they get their way or it's the end of the world. It ends up being a shortcut. It ends up becoming an easy way to get other people to do what you want them to do without having to make a convincing case. And so that's the um, practical conclusion of accepting Pascal's wager. And um, you could see that uh, the incentives don't line up. Something's really going wrong here. Uh, So now for the case, now the case for climate change itself is substantial, but the case for banning these fossil fuels in exchange for not having a global meltdown is what I think is a fiction. And that's the difference in my mind. uh, That's the difference in my mind between um, that is being exploited in this situation. Everybody in school, everybody who goes through school these days, or even when I was in school, knows about the climate emergency and people are scared. But then they're never given further background in the science, the energy, the economics. You have to kind of look into that yourself. I mean, some people, some people study in school, uh, but mostly people are just hammered with the talking points. The the rest of the education is more neglected. Kids just need to be given the impression that the world is going to end and that it's all the fault of the stupid adults who won't wake up. Well, in my book as a movement, you don't get to make failed apocalypse predictions for 50 years or more and have those predictions carry the same weight as they once did. What's your take on the Pascal's Wager argument? Localmaxradio at gmail.com if you want to weigh in. Uh, I expect I might have some stuff to read in the upcoming shows. All right. Now, this episode is brought to you by Manning Publishing at manning.com. Uh Check out the book, specifically Deep Learning with Structured Data by Mark Ryan, who was who I interviewed in episode 87, and that will teach you to apply powerful deep learning analysis techniques to structured data found in relational databases that real-world businesses depend on. You can use Pod Local Max 19 to get 40% off, uh, 40% discount on all items. Uh, We have all the Manning books, not all the Manning books, but we have a lot of Manning books in our Foursquare library at work. It would make a great addition to your work library. Sometimes you can even expense it if you're an engineer at your company. Learn computer science, learn technical frameworks, make your job skills more marketable. In fact, I'm going to talk about this soon in a couple of weeks. I'm interviewing David Kopeck, who is a computer science professor, and he wrote a book for Manning called uh, Classic Computer Science problems in Python that is, uh, it, it promises to be, uh, and it, 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 I've, I've read, I've, I skimmed through a bunch of it now. I'm going to go through some of the problems. It really looks like it's a great book to brush up on your computer science skills or to kind of, um, you know, start from scratch if you really know uh, the language of Python. Or there's another one in Swift, too, if you really know a language, but you want to know kind of the basics of computer science. So that's manning.com, pod local max 19 for 40% off. Okay, now 
let's get to something that is a little lighter. You're being lied to all the time. Oh, oh, that's not lighter. Maybe, well, okay, maybe a little lighter. I've got two articles on some new scientific studies. One is the effect of red meat on your health, and the other is the effect of sleep on your health. So, yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's lighter. Uh, when we analyze these articles, it's really about Bayesian inference again. What new evidence does this give us, and how do we incorporate it into what we know? In some cases, we have a common situation where lots of conflicting information and scientific studies have been given out in the past. So when one more scientific study comes out, it shouldn't move your beliefs that much on its face until and unless those studies become overwhelmingly convincing, even in the face of past studies and life experiences. Um, along with this, uh, as I was going to go into it, I found some interesting tweets by Ben Evans of Andreessen Horowitz he recently pointed out there are a lot of misleading headlines, specifically in the tech industry. And a lot of these headlines can be dispelled by carefully reading the articles, as if anyone does this, if you read the articles. But uh, let me read his tweets before we begin. He writes, he tweets, an increasingly common feature of major newspaper stories about tech. The headline looks shocking. And then you read the actual story carefully, line by line, and work out that it isn't really true at all. Huge health insurer has given all of its data to Google, and then it turns out they're just using Google Cloud. NHS, National Health Service data given to Amazon, means that Alexa can use the NHS website to answer basic questions. It kind of gives the impression that it's given everyone's health data. Uh, then he writes, uh, then there's the blindingly uncritical reporting of any press release that fits the narrative. Facebook use correlates with racist violence in Germany. Uh, and then it turns out that it's just based on likes on the Nutella fan page. Okay, that's weird. Uh, another one is Google News makes billions, which is really based on, uh, on one off-the-cuff comment from a decade ago. And then he writes, Twitter disclaimer, yes, there are plenty of critical stories that we need to be told, but you do have to actually be able to back them up. And, and this is me. A lot of times they don't do it. And so, unfortunately, we're being bombarded with lots of information, no gatekeepers. It's up to each individual to do this. Another thing he tweets, all of those examples were from newspapers with paywalls. Think about that, with paywalls. So they give you the false information in the headline, and then they say, if you want to read more about this shocking news story that we just put out in front of you, you've got to pay for our subscription, four or $5 a month, six, seven, eight dollars a month, whatever it is, and then you get to read the article. And then if you actually do pay and read the article, you find out that their headline isn't true at all. What a scummy trip, what a, a scummy trick these people are involved in. Oh my God. All right. Uh, so now we're going to talk about these two articles, and they're kind of fun. We're not outraged or anything. Don't worry. Uh, and I, I spoke about with this with Aaron a, a few weeks ago at the end of our last discussion. Disclaimer, it was late at night. If you remember, this is like 1 a.m. from the last show, and this was even after that. So this is now 2 a.m., and Aaron was like hallucinating that he was an old man pounding on the table, worried about kids on his lawn. So we're still into that. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's have a listen. I'm just one grumpy old man, as we've clearly established. Well, I, that's, that's good. Some people need to hear from that. <laughs> All right. I think I do want to have this extra content to go over uh, these two articles that we have written here. Um, so, you, you want to talk about that yeah, now? Yeah, let's talk about that now. We have uh, two articles. Okay. One, 
one we feel more positively about and one we feel more negatively about. They're both similar in that they're both kind of scientific study articles that are that most people get uh, all the time, whether it's in your you know, in your news feed, uh, in the olden days, it used to be like these magazines that came to your house or whatever. And it's like, oh, uh, don't eat this anymore. This is a- or, or on the on the the, the nine o'clock news <laughs> or ten o'clock news. They, they'd have a, you know, latest study proves that X is good for you and Y How is bad for you. are you, Aaron? <laughs> I didn't say I watch it. <laughs> OK. Um, I don't I don't watch any television so, live. OK. Um, <laughs> so the first one um, is sort of an example of experts reversing themselves and reversing themselves again and then reversing themselves again. Um, and this one is on red meat. So the, uh, the title of the article is from the L.A. Times. It says that uh, it gives the red meat diet nutrition guidelines. Uh, and it says, let me see if I can get the quote from the article. Uh, the main headline is that um, the the um, the last flip flop is now red meat is apparently okay. Um, in many of the nation's official nutrition recommendations, including the idea that the red red meat is a killer, have been based on a type of weak science that experts have unfortunately become accustomed to relying upon. Now the iffy science is being questioned. At stake are deeply entrenched ideas about eating healthy and trustworthy nutrition guidelines. And with many scientists invested professionally and even financially in the status quo, the fight over the science won't be pretty. Uh, so this is this stuff gets really frustrating after a while because it's, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they flipped and they flopped back again on this. Um, and yeah, well, they, they weren't disproving well, they, they weren't proving that, I, I guess, okay, so, they're not saying that red meat is good for you. Right. But they are saying that all these studies that say red meat is bad for you, eh, they don't really hold that okay. much water. That's, that, that they don't stand up to, to critical That's probably review. true. Um, okay. Uh, and, 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 and a lot of this comes back to to uh, something that we've, we've kind of railed on previously is is causation uh well we, we usually say correlation versus causation they they say that uh, any attempt to derive causation rather than association uh r- really requires some sort of a study with with a control group and a formal experiment yeah, i mean setup. if you think about it, just think um, about it logically like what are they gonna how are you really gonna do that are you really gonna take um a thousand people and say okay y- you 500 random people uh, you eat red meat once a week or, th- or three times a week, and y- you other 500 people, uh, y- you're not going to eat r- red meat at all. Um, first of all, like, who would do such a study? So it would be self-selected to begin with. And secondly, like, that just doesn't seem like a, um, a practical study to do. Yeah, so, and, and, and they do have... Now, you could uh, do observational a, studies, a... and that's... Yeah. Collection of studies that 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 run over many years with large groups of people, but the problem is that the level of detail on like how often did you eat red meat? It's all self-reported, um, and and so that any any conclusions being drawn from self-reported studies, much like we were saying before about uh, you didn't tell me Peter Luger's polling, was red meat. Come on. <laughs> well, uh, the 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 pork isn't the the bacon. That's that's. That's the other white meat, right? I, I don't even know. 
um but but yeah and any anything that's that's uh relying on self-reporting comes with a giant caveat okay. on it um Another thing that, and this may have just been how the article was written, but it, it, it caught my attention, was they keep referring to experts, and then they also refer to scientists. Uh, Are they but different? they don't make it clear whether they're using those interchangeably, or if they're just dis- distinguishing between the scientists did this scientific research, and the quote-unquote experts drew these other conclusions, and these experts are not you know credentialed in any meaningful fashion, uh, but people are treating them as experts, um, which in the realm of of diet and nutrition uh i would not be surprised if there are a lot of people passing themselves off as experts uh who do not deserve that title okay uh if there's nothing else on this article i think we could move on um oh does it bring up the food pyramid i I, I, that's actually an interesting yeah i i wanted to throw that out that that uh there have been a couple of evolutions of the food pyramid uh since the one that i remember um, apparently it was, was only in vogue from 1992 to 2005. Um, that's, yeah. that's the food pyramid of my yes, childhood. Um, and, and they've, they've since revised a lot of their thoughts on that, uh, which, which raises the, yeah. the classic question of how much of what we were taught as kids is wrong. How much of yeah. what we know now is wrong and, 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 and how wrong are those things and how do we I tell know, the I remember saying um, like, I can eat. N- none of which are things we can answer. I can eat all this bread. I mean, look at the food pyramid. And my mom was like, ah, oh, that's not right. Uh, <laughs> you can't you can't believe a food pyramid. Uh, okay, uh, yeah. I mean, and how much are we learning now that's going to be turning wrong in the future? There's always the sense that, hey, we were wrong then, but we're right now. Uh, but um, no, you're probably wrong now too uh, in a lot of things. Um, now, red meat, I you know, I think it's prudent to um, maybe not eat it every meal, but. I, my sense is that yeah, certainly all things in moderation is a a reasonable way to live yeah, one's I, life. I can't, I can't believe that something that's been eaten, uh, you know, for, um, well, you know, for for all of human history, uh, can be that bad. Uh, it just it 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 doesn't seem like it. All right, so uh, the next one is the sleep study, which so this one we're saying is like well. Okay, it's kind of calling out the science a little bit, uh, so maybe this this article is a little more positive. But the sleep study, uh, that's from MIT News. I think you found that one. Uh, yeah, so then, so I th- there are two very different takes on okay. this article. Better um, sleep. One is that the actual. So let's, let's do oh, the title go ahead. first. Yeah. The title of the article is okay. Uh, better sleep, better grades. Uh, study better sleep habits lead to better college grades data on MIT students underscore the importance of getting enough sleep bedtime also matters oof it sounds like they're drawing conclusions not only are they um, doing a causation correlation thing but then they're drawing additional conclusions with the, from the data that's not even related to that which is another problem y- yeah there's there's a serious problem at least with the headline yeah. um, m- like like I, I, I want to say 90% and, and I'm pulling that statistic out of my butt. So uh, I, I shame on me, but uh, a vast majority of science reporting, I feel like uh, the headline says the opposite of what the study actually showed. Right. Um, so, so in this case, the study had some really interesting findings on, on the effects uh, on, on the connection between sleep uh, and academic performance. Um, uh 
and 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 some of them were not what they expected, and some of them kind of confirm what your mom has always told you uh, all these years. But uh, wait, which the, is what? Just get the headline get sleep in the article, or, or go to sleep early, or well, that, that yeah, that 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 pulling all nighters is a oh, bad yeah. idea, and that you you need to get enough sleep. And uh, the the things that I found particularly interesting uh, were were they expected going into this to have a, a correlation with with exercise. Um, and they found that there was zero correlation there. Um, and, and, and they stipulate, well, maybe it's because they weren't exercising enough to get over kind of a threshold for it to make a but difference. But that's the thing. That, that um, sounds like you're just... But, um, and look, it's, I, I would do the same thing. I'm like, well, exercise seems like it's, it's a really good thing. And so I don't trust the results. But if you're going to do that, then, um, you know, then you can't... Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's, it's perhaps uh, fodder for a future yeah. study. But 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 they so they they discarded that that they conclusion. Can't just discard um, they did come up. You, you can't selectively discard conclusions. Well, no. So, so the 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 data did not support that conclu- the conclusion that that exercise would improve your your right. your grades. Um, they did find a correlation between the number of hours slept uh, and performance. Mm. Uh, they also found that it wasn't just the number of hours that well. So so there was a a strong correlation between. Uh, your consistency of sleep. So it wasn't how many hours on average did you get uh, that mattered. But what also mattered was did you get the same amount of sleep every night, or was it that you got you know six hours some nights and eight another, and it varied. That's wildly. a problem I had. That was yeah. The the more the more variation there was, the the lower their academic performance tended to be. They also found that there was a gender divide. Um, that women. Uh, tended to perform better academically than men. However, if you normalize based on sleep patterns, that difference went away. And so uh, the the difference between uh, men and women's performance in this class was entirely uh, attributable to their sleep habits, that, that because women tended to have better sleep habits, they were performing better academically, which... I don't know. I, I would never have in a million years guessed that there'd be that, that kind of a... a a finding in a test. Interesting. Like All right. So how much, how much stock do you put in these results just from reading this? I mean, it, it was, it was a group of, uh, uh it, was, it was relatively small scale. I, I'd have to check in here, but I want to say it was something like a hundred right. students. And they were MIT um, students. Yeah, so. It was, it was a hundred students. They were collecting the data with Fitbits. So it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like they were in a sleep lab getting precise sleep data. They were getting, you know, estimated sleep duration, which is, which is suitable for this, level of testing, but they can't say anything about the quality of that sleep itself. Yeah. Um, and, we, and we have zero information to determine the direction of the, the causation link here. Uh, is it that uh, they got better sleep and therefore got better grades? Or is it that the people who, uh, who, di- who got less sleep were getting less sleep because they were more concerned about their academic performance, they were struggling in the yeah. course, and so they tended to spend more time staying up late studying? Or maybe they just um, or, don't... Or is don't, it a, a, a mixture yeah, Maybe they just there? don't... Uh, uh, schedule their time very well and they just kind of stay up and yeah. but it's not because they stayed up it's because they uh you know they, they don't have specific times to start studying either and, and by the and way so I, i'm a, criticizing a these people it, but the, the, this these are my people <laughs> these are the people who stay up too oh, late yeah, abs- absolutely we, we are all guilty at the right of this. time yeah <laughs> well there, there was one other interesting piece in there was was that um beyond the number of hours of sleep that you got when you went to bed mattered um, in, in the sense that um, there was there was kind of a cliff that you would fall off that um, 
if, if you had multiple people who are all getting the same, let's say, eight hours of sleep, uh, people who went to bed at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, uh, they all had more or less the same performance. But if your bedtime fell at 2, 3, or 4 o'clock, or you know, in, in that latter half, there was a significant drop-off in your performance once you crossed that, even if you had the same amount of sleep. I see. And so that probably gets into... Uh, how how circadian rhythms and and you know kind of daylight shifting play into it well um, so yeah, again well, small scale study so i it's it's difficult to draw any any in-depth conclusions but but it was interesting that there was a a measurable kind of divide that was based not on duration of sleep but when you went that's to interesting sleep. too because i was a real night owl uh when i was in grad school at nyu because the classes especially when I stopped working, when I was doing it full time, you know, the classes were from five to 10 in the evening. And sometimes I would just go to Veselka in the East Village and just work till three, four in the morning uh, on, on my assignments and then just go home. But there's something about being a, a, a programmer, a coder, where your brain is kind of more switched on for it at night. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not the only one who finds this. This is like kind of a well-known thing that a lot of people face, but uh, it's, uh, it's true, especially for these kind of, you know, the, these in-the-zone coding assignments. Nobody gets up at like uh, 8 a.m. And, and is like, oh, yeah, I'm in the zone to like write a compiler right now. Uh, I don't know. There's something. Well, I'm sure some people do, but not, not me. Not many. I mean, there are some things that are okay in the morning, like giving a presentation first thing in the morning I can do, but um, certain types of coding exercises I can't. So I don't know. I, nothing to do with this study, just something interesting. All right. Yeah. Well, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll close it out by giving credit where credit's due. In the second to last paragraph, they, they do say, quote, uh, but he adds one caution. That said, correlation is not the same as causation. While I have no doubt that less and more variable sleep will hurt a student's grades, it's also possible that doing poorly in classes leads to less and more variable sleep, not the other way around, or that some third factor such as ADHD could independently lead to poorer grades and poor sleep. So, so they do cover their, cover their butts, so to speak, on that. Uh, but it's disappointing that it takes till pretty much the end of the article to counter the uh, misleading no, people. Uh, pe- so. The people sharing this article are not reading down to there. Yeah, and and, and unclear on on what the uh, editorial process is at MIT News. But I, I have heard frequent complaints from uh, from journalists that they write the article, but they don't get to pick sure. the headline. And that often it's their editor who's doing that. So perhaps not all blame is is due on the person that wrote the article, uh, but but the uh, the news outlet as a whole. Uh, yeah. Shame on you. <laughs> all right. Now speaking of getting enough sleep, I think that's something that both of us have to do right now. So thanks for joining me for another news update and providing news updates for local maximum listeners uh, for throughout the month of November. Okay, we'll we'll be back when there's news. All right. Coming up as we. Uh, round out the year, our December lineup. I have two uh, really cool interviews that were that were a lot of fun to do. I already did them. Uh, the first is uh, from David Kopeck, author of the Manning book, uh, uh, Classic Computer Science with Pythons. I got to talk about, you know, my. Uh, I, I got to bring up kind of uh, you know my. Uh, my study of computer science and my ideas in computer science. So we got to go back and forth on that. So that was really good. And then. After that, I talked to uh, Alex Andorra, 
who is starting a uh, podcast on Bayesian inference. And he also uh, does a lot of work and has for years uh, with, you know, analyzing elections and polls and that sort of thing. And he's in France. So he's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the French version of 538 that we do here. And we had we talked about Bayesian inference and we talked about uh, elections and social choice theory, too. And we got more of an international flavor on that one, which I, I really love because I talk about political issues. I talk about social choice issues, but obviously I talk about the U.S. a lot more. And um, I know that this audience tends to be more international, especially when it comes to kind of the data science machine learning side. So um, we kind of go back and forth on that and, and, and a lot of interesting points are, come out of that. So um, please uh, subscribe and uh, look out for those two interviews. And then <laughs> we'll see what I figure out I'm going to do at the end of the year. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account at MaxSklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.